Canucks Central Tuesday. Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. We are a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Lots come on the program. Uh, we went through the forwards and where the Canucks forward group stacks up against the rest of the Western Conference today. We will look at the defense set. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a bit of a bittersweet day here on uh, on Canuck Central. Yeah, it is. Uh, as we sit here on uh, July nineteenth, it is our last show together of the summer. Okay, of the summer, yes. don't like not the last show ever. No, we hope. Um, well, as, as long as we're <laughs> as far as our power is concerned, yes. anything's possible. <laughs> anything's possible. Yeah, and, and not, not quite. Not, as ex- yeah, not in a Kevin Garnett way. <laughs> no, not in, a, in, a, in an excitable KG way. No, <laughs> anything is possible. Po- no, not like that. Not anything like that. Anything is possible. Uh, it's, more, it's more like that. <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy. Um, but yes, uh, last show together for uh, for the summer. Uh, you are here with Israel Fair tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canuck Central will close out uh, at the end of this week. Uh, take a little bit of a hiatus until Labor Day, and uh, our vacation schedules just kind of uh, zigzag through the summer. So yeah. uh, we will not be doing any shows together until uh, well, the next planned one will be September sixth. Yeah, and uh, I'm back for two weeks in August. Yep. But I'm going to Europe in August. You are, yeah. I'm just for two weeks in August, and I don't know what's going to happen those two weeks. I don't know like how the show is going to be built out. Like I know that I'm doing some shows with Randeep. Our program then... director, Canberra, he just like, you know, he's kind of honeymooning in Europe. So I'm not going to be too mean, but like I don't know. Last week I found out I'm 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 doing the morning show. Uh. at one point in August. <laughs> I'm like, great, yes, <laughs> super, <laughs> great. So like I I gotta wake up at four o'clock in the morning. That's what you get. That's your prize in the summer. Early yeah. wake ups. Bless Alfred and Bruff for doing that all the time. It's, uh, it's yeah. good, of, good of them. Yeah. Um, I heard roads are melting in, in Europe right now. That's kind of, it seems bad. Godspeed to Randy. Yeah. Yeah. Our friend Randy Janda. <laughs> so we've, uh, <laughs> we've got a lot to get to today. Yeah. And, and since it is uh, a bittersweet last show together for a, a little while, uh, we will be doing a final. Canuck Central Mailbag here today. So if you have any uh, questions you want to have answered before the summer is out, for me and Sat, uh, get those questions in at Satyarshaw and at Dan Rico underscore. Also 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line. And as always, get us on the podcast so that you never miss a mailbag, you never miss any of our exclusive interviews or inside info, all of it. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So, the Canucks defense sat. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, we sort of determined that the Canucks forward group is about top five. If you want to be pessimistic about it, maybe sixth. If you're really pessimistic, below that. Mm-hmm. But, like, uh, really, it's they're entrenched in the top eight. Yeah. You can argue from five to seven, maybe eight, but really it's that five to seven range. So now we need to look at the defense. Yes. The much maligned back end of the Vancouver Canucks. So bad that they'll never be able to win a hockey game ever. (laughs) Uh, At least that's how it feels the rhetoric can get to at some point. Now, yes, 
it is a bit of an issue. It is one of the areas of concern for management. They've publicly said, Jim Rutherford said to us last week on the show, you know, we wanted to reshape our defense and we haven't been able to do that. Mm -hmm. So it is definitely still a spot that the organization feels they need to upgrade. And rightfully so. They've got Quinn Hughes and a collection of players. <laughs> yes, they have players. We have a defense. Uh, some some that are uh, paid handsomely and, you know, are solid players. Oliver ekman Larson. Uh, yeah, and I, and I like OEL. He really had a strong year last year. And you know, the offense, maybe not what you would have hoped it to be, but he had a strong year. Tyler Myers... Uh, better than what some people suggest, not as good as his mm-hmm. salary suggests. So there's a middle ground there. Luke Shen wildly over, uh, you know, overachieved for what his salary and expectations were last season. And then you have the upside play of Jack Rathbone and a collection of players that fill out the the defense: Kyle Burrows, uh, Tucker Pullman, and uh, Brady Keeper, and the like. So. There is your Canucks decor as it currently stands. And one of the other issues is it's a bit of a shallow pool coming as well, depth-wise. But if we just look at what they have projecting for the NHL, is it better to go about this as, okay, who are they better than rather than, you know, where do they stack up? Because it seems like that would be a shorter list. Uh, unlike the forward group, they're not going to be in the top five for yeah. the defense. You know, and and probably not six or seven either. No. So let's look at, like you said, the teams that we know they're better than defensively. Yes. Anaheim. Mm-hmm. Arizona. Who, who does Anaheim even have? These they still have Cam Fowler. Okay. You know Cam Fowler's in his 30s now? Is he really? Can you believe it? Time flies, man. <laughs> That's one thing I realized. I was looking at Anaheim's team. I'm like, young Cam Fowler. Young Cam Fowler is now 30. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they have Shattenkirk. And, I mean, Drysdale has a lot of potential. I love Drysdale. But a young player coming along, and you know, Fowler is good. Those two guys. But Josh Mahora, we'll see. You know, Urho Vakanainen, okay, we'll kind of see here. Shattenkirk's not what he used to be. Yeah. And they still need to sign more players on that back end. I mean, hey, if they add Klingberg or something all of a sudden, that might change the equation. But as it stands... I don't think anybody argues that Anaheim's defense is better than Vancouver's. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's wild because under Bob Murray, they had drafted and, and developed so many defensemen, but uh, they are far cry from that right now, though Drysdale is sort of exciting. But right now, obvious Canucks are better than the Anaheim Ducks on defense. Uh, can we just lump Arizona and Chicago in there as well? Yeah, I'd say that's fair and easy. We can <laughs> lop those teams off. I'd be hard-pressed to name three defensemen on the Arizona Coyotes. Uh, I can tell you Jacob Chikrin. <laughs> uh, and he may not be long. I mean, hey, listen, uh, they have Shane Gossespierre, who, took okay, a, who yeah. had a solid season last year after being traded over as a ca- salary cap dump from the Flyers, right? And Oh, you know, they, ju- they just did another one of those last Nemeth. week. Yeah, they Patrick Nemeth. Nemeth. Is, but they, it ain't much there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there, there isn't a oh, lot they there. they got Troy from Richmond, too. They do. Yeah, they got Troy. That's true. Shouts to Troy. Going to see him at the uh, Challenger Baseball uh, Golf Tournament. One of the long. actual celebrities at the Golf Tournament. Yes. Tournament. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> I I am a quality uh, G list celebrity at the golf tournament tomorrow. Hey man, at least you're a G. 
<laughs> we'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, in, in a moment. So they're better than Arizona. They're better than Chicago. Uh, Seth Jones and friends, not quite doing it. Um, all right, I'm going to throw another name at you. Oh, yeah, please do. The Seattle Kraken. Oh, yeah. Vancouver's certainly better than the Kraken. I mean, the Kraken is spending a lot of money on their defense. <laughs> I'm just not sure it's getting any, getting them anywhere. I mean, Alexiak, tough year, right? I like Adam Larson a lot, but Adam Larson would be nice alongside a good defenseman. You know, yeah. like, he'd be fantastic in Vancouver alongside Quinn Hughes. Like, I think that's where a guy like him really would excel, right? And we talked about him last offseason as yeah. a guy Vancouver had a level of interest in. But yeah, I don't think anybody can argue their defense is better than Vancouver's. Uh, the Seattle Kraken. <laughs> I, I just, I kind of laugh back to last summer when people were like, this is going to be a 100-point team. What? <laughs> so yeah. wait, at, when anybody else signs a middling defenseman for like four or five million bucks, they get hammered for it. But when the Kraken do it, it's all of a sudden a good idea. Never really uh, understood that. San Jose Sharks uh, don't have Brent Burns anymore. Still have Eric Carlson, Mark Edward Vlasic on huge contracts. Canucks are better than the San Jose Sharks. Yes. Yes. The Edmonton Oilers. Are the Canucks better defensively, or is their decor better than the Edmonton Oilers' decor? Darnell Nurse, Evan Bouchard, Tyson Berry, Cody Ceci, Brett Kulak, who was a nice find for them. Yeah. Vancouver's is better than Edmonton's defense. I, I I mean Darnell Nurse is not Quinn Hughes. No. Um and I'd actually, you know, I, I know much, much more. He is, and I know people like him better than OEL. And yeah, he's better, but I don't think it's that big of a gap, honestly, with, with some with how well OEL's been able to play as a two way defender. But still, you know, whatever. You you can still obviously say he's better, of course. So you have Darnell Nurse, you have Kulak who I like. Bouchard can play in a bit of a sheltered role, but you can see he gets tr- caught in transition a bit. I don't love their defense. Yeah. You know, and even Cody CC's all right. They have their defense isn't horrible, but it's kind of where Vancouver's at. It's that it's that range of slightly below average, but I'd still look at Vancouver's higher end being a bit better. And Philip Roberg, he's a bit of a disaster. Slater Cuckoo, that's not a guy. No. One of the things about Vancouver that is a benefit in this conversation is just Quinn Hughes. You know, when uh, there's sort of a similar level of of talent, who are you going to give the tie to? Uh, the best player, and that's uh, that's that's Quinn Hughes. I will say Brett Kulak, um, signing him for four years, just under three million. Yeah. He's long been one of the more underrated defensemen in the league. Mm-hmm. Like, does his job well. Isn't the most physical guy, but doesn't always have to be because he's just smart about his positioning, how he gets the puck out of his own end, and those types of things. Doesn't necessarily do the traditional things all that well. You know, yeah. clearing, boxing out the crease, and you know, being hard along the walls mm-hmm. in the defensive zone. But he doesn't find himself in a lot of those situations. So yeah. uh, it, it ends up working out in the end. But uh, So I like Brett Kulak. Um, all right. So we've determined that the Canucks decor is better than Anaheim, Arizona, Chicago, the Edmonton Oilers, the Seattle Kraken, and the San Jose Sharks. Yeah, because the Sharks, they traded Brent Burns as well. Yeah. Eric Carlson had a better season last year. I think, you know, if we're being fair to Eric Carlson, he, he was okay last year. He wasn't bad last season. Mm-hmm. But Mark Edward Vlasic is not good. And I actually think some of the things they did, like getting Marcus Nudevara on a cheap deal, that can be a nice little 
uh, defenseman who can play uh, a role for them and be all right. Your boy Matthew Benning got a four-year deal from them. So, I mean, you know, and Mario Ferraro is not bad. So I don't think their defense is this horrible defense that's not even going to be able to stay together. They have a few guys that actually give you a little bit of value, but it's it's not good by any means. Uh, I like Matt Benning. I still can't believe he got a four-year deal. Yeah, four <laughs> years. Uh, but Matt Benning, another one of those guys that I feel is underrated. Uh, all right. Uh, so that that makes the Canucks a top 10 decor. Yeah, I mean, is that six teams? Is that saying a lot, though? Being a top 10 decor in, in a 16 team conference, you're still below average if you're 10th. Yeah. So are they better than anybody else? Okay. I'll, th- I'll throw three more teams at you. Okay. Um, the Winnipeg Jets. Yeah. The Dallas Stars. Mm-hmm. And. Hmm. The other one would be. I mean, I think that's it. The Vancouver Canucks. The Canucks so that, there. This seems to be the tier. Right. Okay, so quickly before we talk about these teams, just run the, the teams that are better than Vancouver, clearly. Colorado's yep. defense. St. Yep. Louis's defense. Yep. Vegas's defense with Petrangelo and Theodore overall. Yep. And plus what else. And I don't love their third pair, but they're still, they still got a good high end. The Kings defense. I know yep. people you know, look at it and like, well, the Kings, this and that, but... Anderson had a really good season. Roy had a good season. Bjornfoot had a good season. Dowdy played all right. And Edler and Dursey played well together. So they're still ranking above Vancouver here. Minnesota, I think Mm -hmm. that goes without saying. And then Nashville, which I also think goes without saying. That their defense is better. Especially adding Ryan McDonough. You can hate the money long term and all that sort of stuff. But as it stands, heck, you can make the case that Nashville has the best defense in the West. Yossi, Fabro, McDonough, Ekholm. Lozon and Carrier. I mean, yeah. that's a top three to four defense in the West. Even uh, even Calgary uh, would be uh, easily better than the Vancouver Canucks. And they only lost Good Branson off that defense. Yeah. They still got Hannafin, Tanev, uh, Rasmus Anderson. Shillington. And Shillington. And Zadorov, who I don't love, but I mean, hey, listen, he's very comparable to a guy like Pullman, maybe yeah. even better, right? So even though I don't love these guys, you have to be fair when you compare them to players on the Vancouver Blue Line. So those seven are clearly above. Winnipeg, Vancouver, Dallas. Would you say that they're in the same tier? Feels that way. Because let's look at Winnipeg's for a second. Dylan Pionk, Morrissey, Schmidt, Stanley, and DeMello. There isn't a star there. There isn't a star there, but it's not a terrible collection of players either. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, like Morrissey was thought to be a player that could end up being a star. Hasn't really panned out, but he's become like a solid 2-3 guy. Uh, that sometimes gets exposed while playing yeah. number one type of minutes. Uh, Nate Schmidt, we know it from Vancouver, uh, good player, but some limitations there. Pionk can be a solid power play quarterback, but doesn't have a full game. Dylan would fall under the underrated type of category, but just a solid player. Yeah, right? he's not. I mean, he's a nice supporting player. Yeah, but he's not doing anything on his own. No. And then, Pionk's good offensively, but he's a bit of a disaster at times defensively. It seems like everybody's got one of those guys. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. I feel like it's hard for me to say Winnipeg is better than the Canucks simply because I would say Quinn Hughes and maybe even OEL are the two best players. Ooh, I'd still say I like Morris. I mean, I don't love Morrissey. I think people overrate Morrissey, but he's still really good. Yeah. He's good, right? But... 
I had a hard time. Like these three teams, uh, I had a real hard time going looking at it, saying, okay, you can make a case Vancouver's better, but then you can also kind of argue in Winnipeg's favor. I would still take Vancouver because I, I take I take the defense with Quinn Hughes over the defense with those guys. Even if yeah. the, the, the totality looks more solid, I'd rather take Vancouver's because you know you're getting Quinn. Yeah, I think Dallas is ahead of Vancouver, though. I think yeah, Dallas I mean, should maybe yeah. be in the tier above. You can make that case, absolutely. Haskinen and Lindell, I mean, okay, I do Lindell's th- a pretty, like, he's a really good shutdown guy. He is. I do think he gets a little, little overrated. Yeah. Suter, like, even though he's a bazillion years old, Suter still does pretty well for He's himself. okay. He's okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, Heiskanen's the guy. I mean, you can even make the case he's better than Quinn yeah. if you want to. I mean, I, I would listen to an argument I think Heiskanen is... <laughs> I love high school. Yeah. I mean, I mean I th- we've I had this discussion before. You know, McCarr is in uh, his own class right now because of how much he can do offensively. But as far as two-way defensemen in the league, Haskinen is going to be viewed as the best guy in the league for, for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I would say I would rank Dallas as ahead of Vancouver's too. Yeah. If push comes to shove, I'd say I can't make the same argument we made about Quinn Hughes because they have Miro. Yeah. And as much as Oyal's, you know, I think he's, he's good – you can definitely make the case Lindell and Suter may have had better years in OEL or similar on par years. I'd say those three guys are comparable to the top. I mean, I'd say their top two guys very comparable to Vancouver's top two. Their top three is well ahead of Vancouver's top three. Yeah. I do wonder a little bit about their third pair, but if you like, say, Rathbone, then give Thomas Harley love as a first-round pick that has a lot of potential and a lot of talent. Maybe he takes the type of leap that we're expecting or hoping that a Rathbone takes down the road, too. So I'd still rank Dallas ahead of Vancouver. I'd say Dallas is the eighth team. Yeah. And then Vancouver kind of comes in in that nine or ten between Winnipeg. You can kind of you can argue there. Like, hey, whoever you want to pick, Vancouver or Winnipeg, I'll take Vancouver's over Winnipeg's. So Canucks uh, would be a top-five forward group, then a... Uh, Right there in the middle of the conference when it comes to their decor, because you know, there's some teams either full on rebuilding or just haven't built out their decors all that well. And Quinn Hughes gives the Canucks a certain floor that other teams just don't have. Um, and then in net, like even the most pessimistic Thatcher Demko uh fan out there would say the Canucks are easily top three in net in the conference because of Thatcher Demko. So it's a pretty good team here, Sat. Like it's, it's not a great team. No, I mean, the forwards are good. The defense, I mean, just cause you're 10th doesn't mean that's good. Yeah. Or ninth. Like, I don't think that's good in the conference. I know people are texting in as like, you know, that's when Drance was being honest when he said the Canucks are bottom five in the league in the defense. You guys really need a reality check. TJ texting that in. Well, I'm, we walk, we walk through all these teams and their defenses, which teams that we just mentioned. Yeah. That Vancouver is better than in the West. Do you think is better than Vancouver? Let let us know. I mean, hey, I'm I'm here for the discussion. Yeah, we just we literally walk through their entire defenses of the teams we said Vancouver is better than. Who is better? Like, do you really think Chicago, Anaheim, Arizona, Seattle, and San Jose's defense is better? <laughs> One, two, three, four, five. Look at those five teams and that's, tell me those five defenses are better than Vancouver. That's incredibly disingenuous. If you feel it, that hey, way. you can have that take that they they're a bottom five, but all I'm saying is it's. We walk through. Let us know which ones you think are actually better than Vancouver's. If you yeah. want to argue Edmonton's better, sure, argue Edmonton's better. But again, there's at least four or five teams that are better than in the West. 
And that's just the West. Just the West. There's also the the East, who yeah. I would assume they're at least better than a few teams. A few teams. But hey, bottom third in the league, you can make that argument, right? Like, yeah, bottom third. I think they're in the bottom third. I I think they're they're not average. I think they're below average. I don't think they're significantly below average. I don't think they're bottom five or six in the league. But just walking through this, you know, I'm curious. If you really think there are defenses that are better than Vancouver's that we overlooked, let us know. There's... <sighs> When it comes to Arizona, Chicago, Anaheim, San Jose, like those teams are significantly um, worse than than where the Canucks are, and just look at their talent group, and it's it's not hard to put the Canucks ahead. Now, if you start to factor in contracts and where the more efficient money is going, okay, that's that's a bit of a different conversation. But we're talking on talent level alone here. I don't see how you would put Seattle ahead of the Vancouver Canucks with what they've got on their back end. So I get the Canucks have a significant flaw with their defense and it really limits their ceiling as an overall team. And it's why the team has been so vocal about wanting to improve it. But also like, again, go through each team and tell me that that team is definitively better than the Vancouver Canucks on defense and you'll probably find that it's a fewer number of teams than you would have thought. They're not bottom five. They're not. They're not even bottom five in the conference. It would be disingenuous to say that. What I, the way I view what Vancouver's looking to do on defense is they're not satisfied. And we have a lot of questions coming in, too, for the mailbag about, are, is Vancouver happy with how this defense is built out? Are they, are they, are they happy to head into the season and they think this is good enough? They're trying to improve the defense. Like, I know for a fact this team has tried to make moves to move money off the defense and try to find ways to improve the defense. What does that tell you? That tells you they don't think it's good enough. They've come out and said, we think we have to improve the defense. Now, Uh, maybe it's not as bad. Go listen to Rutherford on Canuck Central last week, and he said, we wanted to to reshape our defense. We haven't been able to do that. The... The more I talk to people with the team, especially the last little week here, to get an understanding of how things are going and what their perception is of how the market feels about the way the offseason is going, the thing I keep getting back is just because we didn't make a lot of those moves doesn't mean we don't want to make moves. And yes, we're heading into next season. And yeah, of course, you always want to be better. But the goal next season isn't playoffs or bust. And part of holding firm for next year and not making moves is an acceptance that, hey, if it blows up in our face next year, that's fine because we're going to have more flexibility next year. Yeah, and next offseason. Next offseason. It's what we talked about so much the past couple of weeks. Like Canucks really locked in to their roster last offseason. It was going to be really hard to move money off the books. There will be ways for you to move money, but are you willing to do that and take a hit on the return, the asset management side of it? How, how many times have I said this specific, specific thing? You can trade Myers and Pearson right now. Mm-hmm. But you're not getting great value. You might have to retain a little bit. Mm-hmm. Next year, however, not only can you trade Myers and Pearson, not only do you not really retain anything, and if you do, it's only one year, you're actually getting an asset back in return. So when you know that in a year's time, you will have more opportunities to get assets back in return and make more moves and have some flexibility, why punt on that for short-term gratification? Why punt on that to get a little bit of extra cap space to go and spend it again and get better? Yeah, they'd like to spend more money if they get cap space, but they're not so desperate for cap space that they want to burden the books for the next few years. So as much as the defense hasn't improved, it's not from a lack of trying. 
And the number one goal for this team long term remains firmly to improve the defense. They understand, however, it's going to take some time. So the, the one part of it is, do you make a trade to lose it in order just to open up the flexibility that you want to be able to do something else? Do you make a trade knowing you are losing that trade just so that you could open up the cap space to do some other things? That's essentially the conversation we're having. And it's fair to think that that is something available to the Canucks. It absolutely is available to the Canucks. But for a team that is so lacking on future assets, I understand why the balance has been so difficult for them to try and open up cap space aggressively like we have seen some other teams do this offseason. Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw, we are Canuck Central. Uh, we're going to keep this conversation going around your Vancouver Canucks. Um, also going to talk with Chris Botta, covering the New York Islanders. What are the Islanders up to this offseason? Are they still looking at making some trades? They're the only team that hasn't made a free agent signing yet this summer. And up next, Emily Sadler will join us. Uh, she's been covering uh, the Hockey Canada sexual abuse investigation. That's coming up next on Canuck Central. Canuck Central, a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Um, tomorrow, I'm, uh, I won't be here for Canuck Central. That's why we're doing a uh, final Canuck Central mailbag today. I'll be at the uh, Blue Jays Challenger Baseball uh, Golf Tournament over at Tawasin Mills, and you can help us support Challenger Baseball with the Rogers Jays Care Challenger Celebrity Golf Classic online auction where you can bid on items like sports memorabilia, game, and event tickets, as well as incredible getaways and experiences. Challenger Baseball ensures every athlete has the opportunity to play in a fun and safe environment. Auction is open now until Wednesday, July 29th. That's tomorrow. Visit jayscaregolf.ca for information and to submit your bid. There is uh, even a Vancouver Canucks experience uh, for you to potentially bid on over there at jayscaregolf.ca. So uh, you can check that out and support a great cause here in our community. Dan Richo and Satyar Shah with you. It's um, it's becoming a bit of a debate amongst listeners on the Dunbar Lumber text line and also on Twitter about the Vancouver Canucks. We will uh, continue to dive into that in just a little bit, but uh, we also want to follow what's happening with Hockey Canada and the investigation around uh, 2018 and a sexual abuse allegation. Uh, let's uh, bring in Emily Sadler, who's been covering this story for Sportsnet. Thanks for this, Emily. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for making the time. It's um, it it's been a tough story to to follow, obviously for for a lot of a lot of us here in Canada and watching how it's it's unfolded. Um, how do you see the way that this is, uh, this is turning out right now and, and where the next steps are? Yeah, well, certainly it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, a massive story that it just sort of seems to 
keep getting bigger. We're seeing, I think we're really starting to see, you know, a lot of information emerged within the last couple of days, even from so many different um, reporters, just about how Hockey Canada operates. Um, and I think we're getting a, a much clearer picture of how it has historically responded to claims of sexual misconduct um, and how it has or hasn't sort of made efforts to kind of make improvements in that area. So it's definitely, as we've all seen, such an evolving story and, there, and there's just so many different, um, different repercussions. And I think we're also seeing... Um, we're starting to see, you know, these calls for accountability and these calls for change. And so I think that is one thing with this story that we're really getting from whether it's sponsors or the government investigation or um, all kinds of probes into really trying to get to the bottom of, of what happened and and how it can be fixed moving forward, how we can fix this system. Well, and, you know, I think one of the one of the things that has really been amongst a lot of things that are very jarring for Canadians watching this unfold is also that Hockey Canada is very much operating like a corporation that's always trying to cover its own tracks to some degree. And mm-hmm. and when you see that and what's expected to be this national program that's about the betterment of society and for the players and all that sort of stuff, I think it's been hard to see that like as real cold-hearted kind of corporate approach to real-life issues that Canadians certainly care about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You're so right. And I think that's such a big reason why this story has has really, really resonated with people because, I mean, certainly you don't have to be a hockey fan to understand the gravity of this situation. But, of course, it being Hockey Canada, like this beacon of pride and light for all Canadians, like it's just so deeply ingrained in, in kind of who who Canadians see themselves as, right? So it's when you see this kind of, um, whether you call it a cover-up, but when you see this kind of treatment or or all of these, um, not just the allegations that come forward, but how the how this organization, this, you know, very well-respected organization within the hockey world and within our, our country, um, when you see how they've sort of responded to that, yeah, I think... Um, to put it sort of in simple terms, it's it's just so disappointing. It's disheartening. And so I think that's really why it's resonated with so many people. And, and people are really saying, hey, wait a minute, this is not okay. We need some answers here. So uh, the, the next set of hearings uh, are to come later on uh, on this month. What's what's uh, expected to happen then? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so while we've gotten a lot of um, a lot of reports this week for sure and getting that clearer picture, I think we're going to really learn a lot more next week. So we've got uh, sort of the second set of hearings next week on Tuesday and Wednesday taking place in Ottawa. Um, So it's once again, um, the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage has called a bunch of witnesses. So we have more representatives from Hockey Canada, representatives from the CHL. There will also be somebody from um, Hockey Canada's law firm that that conducted the third-party investigation, Hannon Hutchinson. Um, as well as Glenn McCurdy, who was um, invited to speak um, at the first hearing on June 20th, but wasn't able to be there. He will be there. He's the former VP of Insurance and Risk Management for Hockey Canada, um, among some other witnesses. So I think the biggest thing that we're going to learn here is, you know, just getting a clearer picture. Um, Hetty Fry, the Honorable Hetty Fry, who Actually, you guys must know well, she's yeah. MP for Vancouver Centre, um, and she's the chair of the, the committee, the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage. She spoke with us on Friday, and she, 
she really made it clear the objective here from this committee, you know, they're they're really not looking to find out um, the depth of these allegations. They're not looking to, they're certainly not looking to name names or unearth names of players or certainly not the plaintiff. That is actually front of mind and everything they've said is, you know, really making sure that you know, the, the woman who came forward with this lawsuit, it's her wish to remain anonymous and, and no one is looking to identify her. Um, really what they're looking for is they're looking to see exactly how Hockey Canada handled these allegations specifically as an organization. Um, so how did they, when did they learn about this? What did they do? Who was responsible for what? And And I think sort of chief among that too is, what have you done since then, right? Because I think that's such a big part of the outrage over this particular case is, you know, it's been four years and we we haven't seen that accountability. We're starting to see it now, but a lot of people are questioning, well, where was this four years ago? Where was this sort of journey to changing four years ago? And so that's really going to be the main goal of this committee hearing is to look into the finances, the insurance, um, where did this money for the settlement come from? And just the overall, how are you changing the culture mm-hmm. within your organization and, and really digging into that part of it? And in these situations, I mean, I think the biggest thing that people need to figure out, and we'll see with the investigation, the criminal side of it as well, is, you know, who actually perp- perpetuated these this assault and what happened and all, and all that. That's the most important thing to figure out. But I think there's always, always this expectation, too, that there should be, some level of accountability and some level of responsibility falling on the shoulders of certain individuals or a certain individual. And mm-hmm. does, does that need to happen in this case where there needs to be somebody identified as, okay, this person, this name, and these names are the ones that were in charge or let this happen? Or do you think it's going to be more of, or, I mean, it's hard to say, but, or are they going to take mm-hmm. the tact of, we're just going to talk about the overarching problems and not assign any specific blame to anybody? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the answer is, totally varies on kind of who you're talking to. I think a lot of people are wanting names, right? You want to know, like, because you want to be able to explain something as mm-hmm. as horrible as these allegations are, you really want to be able to point to the problem and point to, like, here is exactly what happened. Because when we talk about, you know, this sort of culture, we've been talking about this a lot around this Hockey Canada um, case, it's hard to sort of it's hard to put your finger on it, right? It's hard to kind of like point your finger on exactly what this is and who has enabled it. And so it's, I think, I think maybe to not really answer your question, it's, it's kind of a little bit of both. I Mm -hmm. think there's definitely going to be personal accountability here. um, Looking at who was in charge during hockey Canada um, at hockey Canada during that time, as we know from the hearings on June 20th and, we will likely hear from them again at next week's hearings. Tom Rennie and Scott Smith, what role did they have? Um, just as, you know, they are kind of the faces of this organization. Um, so I think definitely it's, yeah, not totally answering your question on this, but I think it's definitely a little bit of both. We want to be able to um, point to the specific wrongdoings here. Well, and, and I think part of that uh culture um you know hockey canada reopening the investigation mm-hmm. now it's it, it it feels like this comes because of the public pressure and uh sponsors bowing out and 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 taking away funding um you know i guess <laughs> it's good that they're completing the investigation after all mm-hmm. these years but um you know it does does feel like it it just mainly becomes of uh, how big this story has become over the last little uh, couple of weeks and months 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it just really speaks to um, what happens when you make a lot of noise about something, right? Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of reporting on this. Um, Obviously, you know, we all know the power of money. And when sponsors stepped in, um, led by Scotiabank, and then you had Tim Hortons and Canadian Tire, et cetera, um, stepping in and saying, we like we're not so sure about this we we need some change we need to see some um tangible change here before we can reinstate our sponsorship and so i think we've definitely we've seen the power of that we've seen the power of public outrage and just putting the pressure on demanding answers and and accountability right i think it just sort of keeps coming back to that accountability and consequences is is what people are looking for in this situation and um Certainly, it it sounds like we're we're kind of going down that path, right? With these hearings next week and just all of the different reporting that's coming out, um, it's certainly a story that's that's not going away, and and it shouldn't go away. Well, the uh, you mentioned how the hearings uh, it's not necessarily to to find out specifics of of who did what; it's more how mm-hmm. Hockey Canada handled that situation. How is Hockey Canada opening its own reopening its own investigation. How is how is that different from what's happening with uh, the standing committee? Yeah, that's a, a great question and something that, to be honest, we're still kind of trying to find the answers to that one. Um, we've got a few questions in with them just to learn a few more details about um, what that involves, what that kind of investigation will involve. But one thing that we do know, a few things actually that we do know is. Um, you know, this time around, um, if you'll recall from from the first uh, testimony that they gave, it was not mandatory that players um, participate in in that investigation. And this time around, it is mandatory. And so um, we're going to, you know, we we already kind of see that change. I would say the biggest development um, this time around is the survivor um, who came forward with the lawsuit. Um, her lawyer confirmed to Sportsnet last week that she will participate in this reopened investigation. And so, of course, that is a really, really significant and important development here. So um, I think with the with the Hockey Canada investigation, it will be a little bit more focused on, on really what happened, as well as, yes, sort of a, an internal looking within at how they handled it. But a lot of that is obviously kind of to be determined um, how that investigation will look. And one of the other things that, you know, uh, has really come to the forefront is how many um, sponsors have pulled out from this and at least have suspended mm-hmm. their, the, the money that's going into the Hockey Canada program. I mean, it's hard to figure out how long it will take for businesses and, uh, and sponsors to kind of come back. But, you know, th- this is also a big, big hit here for Hockey Canada. And maybe that, that's the lesson, as, as hard as it is for people to understand. But when you see the money really dry up and that kind of puts the program in some peril that also really starts stimulating a response to all these sort of things so i think i don't think we can as as much as i don't want to be cynical here but when you yeah. see you know the, the people that are investing a lot of money make a lot of noise that's usually uh the, the one of the biggest precursors to things happening mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and and that was something um after so on thursday when hockey canada you know sent out their release, their letter to Canadians, and also pledged to reopen this investigation. I had reached out. I was curious about, you know, um, okay, what might this mean for sponsors who had, you know, very specifically said, we want to see you making a true effort at change. Um, I reached out to someone at Scotiabank, and they 
um, you know, they said, we recognize this as a, you know, a positive first step in what will be a longer journey. And so I think it's, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, these sponsors, these corporations, um, they are serious about this. Um, they want to see real tangible change. And the same goes for when the government throws their funding as well. Um, Minister of Sport Pascal St. Ange had said in Montreal, um, a sort of something along the same lines, right, about this is a good first step. Um, we're going to wait and see what really comes of this. So um, I, I think that was a big question. I know I certainly was asking that question of, okay, so what has to happen sort of before these sponsors say we are satisfied with the change that you have undergone? Emily, uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, our listeners uh, really appreciate your writing and uh, uh, your, your part in reporting on this story. Thank you. Thank you, guys. There is uh, Emily Sadler uh, with Sportsnet uh, covering the Hockey Canada investigation and the ongoing uh, standing committee looking into Hockey Canada's handling of this as well. Uh, There was a new report this morning from the Globe and Mail that talked about a fund that is partially paid for by registration fees to Hockey Canada uh, that uh, goes to help uh, oh, goes towards paying uh, situations that include sexual abuse that aren't um, used as, uh, well, it's used separately as a fund for situations like a sexual abuse or otherwise uh, instead of going through an insurance policy. Uh, so that report came from the Globe and Mail uh, earlier this morning. Uh, and still looking to uh, get more details on that. Yeah, and uh, we'll see how this story unfolds, of course. And, you know, on that regard, like we talked to Emily about, it's just a very corporate way of approaching this entire situation for Hockey Canada. You know, and and part like in, in part I mean, of it part, is sport, but it's it's a business. It is, and, and that's how they operate. And I understand, and I'm not making any excuses. If anything, what I'm trying to illuminate here is that yeah. these entities, which are supposed to be government-run and it's supposed to be about the about the good of the people, really, that's what you're yeah. supposed to be there for, is very much run like a business, covering its own tracks and looking out for its own interests at all at every turn. I mean, the the fund they're having, there's nothing illegal about what they're doing in that sense, like having yeah. a fund for unforeseen liabilities. That's a very corporate thing. Like have a mm-hmm. fund for who knows what can happen because you have people working for your company and people. Do human things and humans can do yes. bad things. And when somebody does something in your company, that can create open you up to a lot of liability. So companies always have um, contingencies to address unforeseen liabilities. But it feels very dirty. You know what I mean? It feels yes. like you're trying to pay off people for a problem to go away. It's not an, it's not illegal to do that, yeah. but it makes you feel dirty. And is that really what you expect from a entity which is supposed to be run by the government for Canadian athletes? Yeah, it it doesn't feel right. That's that's the thing, right? It doesn't, and that's the biggest part about this story is, you know, this doesn't feel like it was handled well in the moment. Oh. And from everything we've learned, we can already tell it wasn't handled well in the moment. Everything they did was to cover their own tracks. Yes. And make a problem go away. Yes. And that's not how you want an organization like Hockey Canada to operate. It's not how you would want any organization to operate but how many times have we been down this road where a story like this comes up and this is what we find out yeah and michelle says it's terrifying knowing that hockey can and other industries 
uh, may have not responded or take assaults uh, as seriously until sponsors peaked or withheld sponsors withheld money when simply the law is not enough to ensure workplace environments to have the policies and procedures to keep people safe. Money really does buy everything. The law included. Cheers. That's from Michelle. Yeah, it's and that's text, a disappointing. Michelle. It is a good. It's a good thought, and that's a disappointing part about this, right? Like above all else, it became how do we maintain a liability here as opposed to being transparent and making a stand on an issue. Well, and um, even now, as um, you start to 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 hear more from certain players, obviously the 2018 World Junior Team, we. Most recently had Connor Timmons say that he was not involved and we've had others. Um, there is, you know, kind of a running list of who said what now um, and, and who has absolved themselves of the situation. Uh, Victor Mete and others have, have said that, you know, I wasn't even at this event, so um, I, I will continue to cooperate in any way that I can help. But I was not a part of anything that happened here. And there's others that are saying... Uh, <laughs> Less and their agents are coming up with less, and and we want to know names, and eventually uh, that will come. But uh, yes, to to just start to play the process of elimination and try to accuse people that way, that's not fair either. Um, but these are all things that are going to be continuously investigated, and we will continue to learn more. I mean, there's a hockey Canada investigation. The NHL wants to find out what happened. We are going to learn yeah. what exactly happened in 2018 at some point. It, it falls that um, the process of elimination is happening because of Hockey Canada allowing this to yes. unfold the way it has unfolded. Mm -hmm. It is unfair to individuals who had nothing to do with it, yeah. who have to respond to it, but it all comes back to how Hockey Canada handled it. Yeah. You know, and the people that did this or may have done this, they deserve all the scorn, they deserve all the repercussions. Within the law and whatever, right? Like publicly, in private, everything. They deserve that. But the people that didn't, had nothing to do with it, they are also dealing with this and the fallout of this because of Hockey Canada's handling of it. It's uh, Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah will continue uh, to follow this story over the course of the summer. And of course, you know, the World Junior Tournament does start up uh, in a few weeks' time uh, as uh, it was postponed back in January and uh, will reconvene coming up here in uh, in early August. Uh, it's Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. We are Canucks Central here on Sportsnet 650. Coming up at the 10 o'clock hour, Chris Botta is going to join us, host of the, the Islanders 4-Check. What exactly is Lou Lamorello up to and how are the Islanders planning on improving their squad? Still a big question mark. The Islanders are looked at as a team that want to be going for it. Not so long ago, they were in back-to-back -back Eastern Conference Finals. Last year, they didn't make the playoffs. But are they still all in? Lou Lamorello in the final year of his contract, what is he up to? And is there still a link with the Vancouver Canucks like we heard about on draft night? That's coming up next on Canucks Central. Hour number two of Canuck Central, Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business 
since 1892. If you missed the opening hour of the show, we ventured into the Canucks decor and where it stacks up in the Western Conference. You can listen back to that. Also, Emily Sadler joined us uh, to go over what's happening with the investigation around Hockey Canada, how they handled the sexual assault allegations in 2018, and what the next steps are as they continue to deal with that. Um, coming up, Chris Bott is going to join us here in a moment, Sat. And there's a lot of teams that have had very curious off seasons. Uh-huh. Uh, Philadelphia is one. They've probably had the worst off season in the NHL, at least for my money. And then there's uh, the New York Islanders. The curious case of the Islanders. They've had, uh, you know, their uh, <laughs> hands in some different pots, I would say. Um, maybe even some discussions with the Vancouver yeah. Canucks. They end up making the Romanov trade, but they are, as of right now, the only team in the NHL who has not signed an unrestricted free agent. And uh, that is um, puzzling from Lou Lamorello's perspective, at least from my perspective on uh, how Lou Lamorello was setting up this Islanders team. Chris Botta joins us, host of uh, Islanders Forecheck and Hockey Press Pass. Thanks for this, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great. Hi, Dan. Hey, Sat. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for making time for us. So, uh, just what exactly is Lou Lamorello up to, Chris? Well, you know, one never knows because that's his reputation for the, keeping the cone of silence. Quiet. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Lou seems to think, you know, listen, I think it's garbage, right? Like, uh, I'm a former PR person for the team, and uh, and currently a, a PR person for leagues and and athletes and teams, and. Um, like, I don't know, Lou, he operates like this is serious, right? You know, like, but it's not. This is hockey, right? It's Canucks, it's Islanders, it's fun. And so I'm not expecting him to uh, tell us his moves or everything he's thinking at all times. But this idea of him operating in a vacuum is just uh, silly nonsense. It's not why he won three Stanley Cups. It almost takes away from it. It takes away from those players. Uh, it's just silly stuff. So um, why he hasn't made a move, I can't answer that, except to say that it's clear they put a lot of stock in hoping to get Johnny Goudreau, not under any illusion that they would get him, but they spent a long time on the first day of free agency trying to sign Johnny. Uh, they failed, probably came in third uh, by most reports, including Johnny's from hearing uh, Gaudreau's interviews today. And um, and everybody else who maybe they might have been interested in slipped, slipped by. So there's still time for shopping. There's still players available. But yeah, as of now, he hasn't done anything. Well, and, and, you know, the, there's been a lot of discussions and some speculation about, you know, Lou, Lou Lamorello's tenure and how many years he has remaining. I mean, what do you make of, of some of those scuttlebutt things that happen this time of year? And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a talk of maybe Lou Lamorello's in the final year of his contract and all that sort of stuff. Like, what yeah, do you make of yeah, all that? Yeah, I, you know, I was just on a, another show on Sunday, and, and it was presented to me as a fact that he has one year left on his contract. That could be true, guys, and, and reputable people have reported that. But I think it's based on the assumption that when he was hired, and then he in turn um, had the brilliant stroke to convince Barry Trotz to sign on as head coach, and, and it was reported accurately that Barry was given a five-year deal. Barry had, was fired with one year left that it's always just been assumed that Lou has one year left too. I would not assume that Lou in, in his 
through all of his years, and especially going back to New Jersey, he's had interesting, all-powerful roles. He's had interesting relationships with his team's owners. So, and, and Lou never wants anybody to know how much time is left on anybody's contract. In fact, he, w- he would often um, not talk about trouts in terms of, you know, are, I, are you going to resign them? When he, he wouldn't even acknowledge that he had a year or two left on his contract. So we don't know that after maybe two or three years that Lou had his contract extended. So none of that means anything because when you have wealthy owners, as the Canucks do, as the Islanders do, even if Lou has a three-year extension, you know, and, you know it, none of that's going to get in the way of making the choice to keep somebody or to lose them, to relieve them of their duty. So I don't think that's a big deal. What I would say about Lou is that this is a a big off season for him. Nothing's been accomplished yet, except for the acquisition of Romanoff. He believes in the team that uh, he, you know, he expects most of them to come back and to return to the high quality of play that they had before last season, which was seriously uh, wrecked by COVID and uh, first 13 games on the road and some legitimate excuses, but he's counting on that. If it doesn't work out this season, do I, do I think he would deserve to be fired? I personally would think that he would deserve to be fired. Do I think he would? I don't know. I, you know, he's got a good relationship with those owners as all GMs do. You've seen in that town, GMs often stick around a long time. They have a big advantage um, because they get to talk one-on-one with the owners all the time. Uh, I saw it. I worked with Mike Milbury for a long time, Bill Torrey, uh, Charles Wong, and, and Mike Milbury had a great relationship, then Garth Snow after him. GMs seem to tend to stick around a real long time, so uh, I couldn't predict the future on Lou. I would say he, deserve, he would deserve to not keep his job if the Islanders have another disappointing season. The majority of this roster is still players that were acquired during the Garth Snow administration, and that includes all of the best ones, with the possible exception of Noah Dobson, who was drafted right after Garth Snow was fired, but they utilize Garth's scouts and his teams and his analytics folks to take Noah. Yeah, and uh, you know Noah's up for a, a big contract. And look, like like most teams in the league right now, the the salary cap picture is uh, is muddy for for the Islanders, but just. So many players locked up long term in in the forward group, and you know you kind of wonder, well, h- how is Lou going to navigate this when uh, there's some contracts likely that other teams wouldn't really want to take on? It's just uh, it feels like there's not much flexibility here for Lou Lamorello. There isn't, uh, you know, the, if they had signed Goudreau, they would have had to have made some other decisions. I don't, and it's. I guess I call I still call it Islanders country because that's what we called it when I was young and they were winning Stanley Cups uh, all the time. Uh, the, the new Islanders ownership seemed to go to this Islanders nation thing. But I will say that Islanders country seems pretty divided by this. I'm amazed, almost really amused that they haven't traded Semyon Varlamov. Varlamov's been fantastic for them. He, he definitely was a big part of them uh, having their two playoff runs. And, and really, just his stability, uh, having him in that has been fantastic. But at $5 million in the last year of his deal, that's a luxury that teams can't afford for a backup or even a 1B or even maybe the best 1B goaltender. Uh, I don't... It, 
sometimes when I talk to fans about this, they go, well, you know, they'd be, you know, if they don't have our llama, well, if they don't have our llama, the replacement wouldn't be an empty net. The replacement would be somebody who's also good, who will be well coached by the Islanders, exceptional goaltending coaches. That's been proven through the years through Leonard and everybody who's come after him in the last four years. And so I don't know why he hasn't carved out some more cap space for himself. Uh, try to move Josh Bailey. He he adamantly says he's keeping Josh Bailey. You know, I don't see it. So um, no matter what move he makes, if they were to make it, J.T. Miller and be so lucky to get a deal like that done, uh, there will have to be some cap considerations there. So they are they are definitely jammed up, and they've traded now their last three first-round picks. And I suspect in any kind of a deal, whether it be for Miller or Tarasenko or anybody else, they would probably have to trade next year's first round pick. Well, now, as far as the whole Miller stuff goes with the Islanders, I mean, it was it was fascinating from our perspective, kind of seeing what happened on the draft floor, the reports of the Canucks and Islanders close to a deal, and then uh, the straight denials from Vancouver that they were ever close or even talking, and Lou Lamorello's, hey, go talk to Vancouver comment. What do you make of that entire situation and just, you know, where the Islanders may stand with their interest potentially on a guy like J.T. Miller? Sure. Um, so when it comes to the GM, Patrick, is it pronounced Alvin, by the way? Alvin. I'm right, I'm right. Yeah. Alvin. Thank you. Sorry. Um, he's sitting, right? When he, when he says that they didn't talk, he doesn't know, he doesn't know where his reports come from, but he feels that's his job. Uh, and, you know, to, and he doesn't want to talk about a player who's still on his roster, not being traded. So I get that, but I mean, I'm, I'll just call it what it is. He's sitting. We can call it worse than that, but you know, they talked about him. We know this. People are a hell of a lot more established and respected than me in our industry, your industry, have reported this as well. So let's get that out of the way. Then Luke saying, go talk to Vancouver. If you, you know, everything we know about Lou Lamorello, him actually blurting that out is really uncharacteristic of him, right? Here's this guy who doesn't want to talk about his own team's business. Yet when confronted with this, instead of just saying, I don't have any comment on that, or fibbing as Patrick did, he says, go talk to Vancouver. Well, because he's he's annoyed because mm. whatever happened, he wasn't happy about. So all that said, that's, by the way, all my opinion, of course, right? Yes. Um, all that said, in the days after, I thought, well, that's dead, right? You know, whatever happened, it went south, it went quickly, turned around and got Romanoff instead. But now I sit here 10 days later, 11, 12 days later, and say, well, there's still, the Canucks have a need to look at trading J.T. Miller and getting the most they can. And there's only so many teams who would be interested. They all, everybody wants J.T. Miller on their team. Um, but so many teams that are really willing to do it. I think the Islanders are one. I know it's been reported that Pittsburgh, where J.T. grew up about 40 miles from there, would be another one. So I would like to think that even if there were any, there was any tension between those two teams, they are two, still two parties that have a need, that have something in common. Jim Rutherford's president of business operations, I believe, used the title over there, and he'd be uh, he'd be somebody who you know I would like to think could broker peace and see if a deal could be done. Now, whether they could have a match anymore. 
uh, because they'd have to revisit what was done on the drafts uh, on the draft floor. That I don't know, but um, you know, I think a trade could still be done between those two. What do you guys think? I mean, you know, I'll say this, Chris. I think that if Vancouver gets the ask. They'll trade JT, and I don't think they're a team or a front office that's going to say, I'm not going to talk to this team because our previous discussions didn't go the way we wanted. I think they realize that if they truly are open to trading JT, there's only so many suitors, and if the Islanders have a package they'd like, I don't think they'd say no. Yeah, no, well said. I agree with you. It's, uh, it, it is fascinating, though, because uh, I, I just don't see where... Uh... A package would make sense, um, at least from the Canucks' perspective. Now that the 13th overall pick wouldn't be wouldn't be on the table, it goes back to the uh, the lack of flexibility here that uh, that Lou Lamorello has. And I, I just I, I look at this team and I, I think it's pretty good. I think you're right, Chris, to say that you know they they maybe underachieved. They had a lot of different factors working against them last year, but. Now at that Metro division way uh, that New Jersey is as beefed up and Columbus gets Goudreau, uh, it just looks harder and harder for the Islanders to get back to the postseason. Yeah. And that's why no argument there. Uh, and that's why I'm sure Vancouver should ask for a lot. Now I, I've seen that in any Vancouver based trade proposal, fans, media, bloggers, whatever, uh, Noah Dobson comes up, <laughs> yeah. and I just don't see that happening. No, uh, yeah. I think he's too much of a cornerstone for the Islanders. If I was the Canucks, I don't know if the Islanders would do this. I know a lot of Islander fans would be upset to see him go, but if I was the Canucks, I would certainly start by asking for start by asking for Oliver Wallstrom. Wallstrom is a really, really talented player who's got a incredible release, incredible shot, skates well enough, and you know he could replace that production. Only 13 goals last year in limited time. It was well documented that him and Barry Trotz, who seemed to get along fine, but you know, Barry, to his credit, would openly talk. Uh, he would answer the questions honestly about why Oliver sometimes only wound up playing eight minutes or 12 minutes. But this is the first round pick from, from only 2018. He's about 22 years old. And I would start there because he'd be the kind of guy who could really uh, blossom in the right situation with the Canucks. So, uh, and then I, I imagine they'd want another piece besides that. There are Islander fans who will say, I don't even want to trade Wallstrom mm-hmm. or trade up for JT Miller. But then the other part of it is, of course, guys, if you're the Islanders, you want Miller to sign an extension. You want to, right? Like, I don't know if you do that deal because if not, you're going to hear all year about this guy who's going to be unrestricted. And as Islander fans point out to me all the time, as recently as Sunday when I was um, did an appearance somewhere uh, between Goudreau, uh, Panarin, who they thought they might get, but he went to the Rangers supposedly for less money, and of course John Tavares, the Islanders haven't been super successful in the in the UFA game. So if they did a deal, they would want to sign Miller long term, as I, I suspect most teams would mm-hmm. want to. Well, I would guess so too. I mean, especially if you are trading away one of the young assets you have. And as far as their prospects go, like, you know, Dobson, I'm with you. I don't see any way that Dobson would get moved. But do you think their prospects, did they have guys that are completely untouchable or would they potentially be open to moving, say, you know, um, whether that's a uh, Atu Ratti, who's a 19-year-old center that has a lot of promise? Like, are there guys that they wouldn't move at all or could they be pretty open you know, outside the roster? Well, one of the, you know, in addition to all the other problems is, and some of this is, Lou inherited, and some of it is he 
hasn't made it better. Um, this is a team that's in danger of aging out. I saw a report, and I'm sorry, I wish I could uh, credit whoever, I don't know if it was like a cap-friendly, team-friendly type website who did the ages based on um, the expected 20 players. And the Islanders still come in around second or third in the league at 29 years average, and that's with Chara and Andy Green off the table right now. So um, they also don't have many prospects, one of them who you named. Uh, believe it or not, I, I, his last name is pronounced Ratu, even though it's spelled R-A-T-Y. And he uh, and I, I only say this because 40 people have corrected me <laughs> saying that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I'm not, I'm not here to correct you. I'm just straight. And he's, uh, he's a talented guy. If I'm the Islanders, would I do that? Yes. Um, perhaps the Islanders would too. He'd be a centerpiece of the trade. Is he a is he a slam dunk? He's a guy you know went later than people thought. It was the prototypical. We got him in a later round and said, oh, he was like we had him as a first rounder. We had him as top ten, like every team says. Uh, he's a very very good prospect, um, but. We don't know about him, right? I, like the Canucks are going to want more than that. Would he be on the table? I would think so. But the problem is the Islanders don't have many other prospects, right? So in all likelihood, it would be some combination of a high pick, a prospect, and then you would want, if you're rather further than the Canucks, a, a guy who could help you now. And, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see how that comes together. Is there any chance that the Canucks and uh, JT could do an extension with Brian Bartlett? I think there is a chance. Um, the Canucks certainly hope that there's a chance. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they've maintained that their preference is to, to keep the player and sign the player. So, yeah. um, but also good luck, but <laughs> right? But also they, yeah. they're going to have to trade them if, uh, if the contract negotiations don't go well. They've maintained that as well. So. Yeah, and I don't blame them. Uh, I, I want to sign him too, but also I don't blame him because you know he just, especially more and more now, like you don't want to be hearing about it all year or thinking about it all year too. I think it could have an impact on a room, could have an impact on the team, certainly on a fan base and ticket sales too. So I do think now is the time to address it. I know there comes a time around August. I know we're all back a few weeks in the NHL schedule. But there comes a time where people tend to disappear and finally take a little time off and spend time with their families in the, yeah. in the NHL industry. So, you know, I just feel like if it's something like this is going to happen, it'll happen in the next two or three weeks. Not JT. And if not, if JT isn't traded somewhere else, he'll stay with the Canucks, the Canucks and then we'll go from there. Hey, Chris, I uh, really appreciate your time and your insights on this. Thanks. Thank you so much, guys. appreciate you having me on. Uh, there is uh, Chris Brada. Uh, covering uh, the New York Islanders as um, a podcast host uh, and a longtime PR man around the league, host of the yeah. Islanders forecheck and hockey press pass. Yeah, uh, some good insight. And and I think the main takeaway here is, despite anything that may or may not have happened between the Canucks and Islanders, I don't think it closes the door on something happening in yeah. down the road if that's well, something that they can agree on. Because... As I mentioned yesterday, if I had to guess, as we get closer to training camp, I'd say, you know, it's more likely he stays than goes, JT. Mm -hmm. But Vancouver all along is willing to trade JT if the ask is met. Nobody's met the ask yet. Yeah. Does somebody meet the ask? And if the Islanders do meet the ask, and I'm not sure exactly what it is, what they would want off that roster, that's a question only the Canucks can answer here. But if they do meet it, 
I don't think they were against it. Like Vancouver all along is not against trading JT. They'd like to keep him if possible. They know that's going to be hard, but maybe he'll, you know, capitulate and sign a team-friendly deal in training camp if a deal hasn't been made. But it just comes back to valuation. You know, yeah. and we talked about the offer from the Rangers. It didn't move the needle. We didn't need to go through the Heedle thing again and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff or even the Pavel Zaka thing. But the Canucks have no interest in taking money back. You know, not money back for somebody that they don't see being worth it. Yeah. Could it be a player that, you know, let's say if, if they offered you, you know, a one-for-one for Noah Dobson, of course you make that deal. You got to pay Noah Dobson. Yeah. But that's not going to happen. That's you know, not so going to happen. They're okay with that, but they're not okay with bringing somebody on that has salary that's not a real needle mover, you know, and they'd rather have the cap space than take that on. And yeah, you want assets and everything, but you really want to hit on a, on a quality asset. They want an asset back in return, Dan, that they can look at and say, this is going to turn out to be something for us. Like we talked about, do you get something back in return that you can project to be an impact player for you? I just don't see how the Islanders uh, make that sort of a move for Miller without giving having to give up salary back in the deal. Well, and with, with the Islanders, though, because they have 11.5, million in cap space, you got to sign Noah Dobson. Yeah, and Romanov. And Romanov. But I do think there is a way to make it work, potentially. Mm-hmm. You know, And I don't think it has to be a big contract. Like You can just take Matt Martin back, potentially. Mm-hmm. You know, like 1.5, like something along those lines. I think you can take one of those smaller salaries to make it work here. I'm sure they would want Vancouver to take a bigger one. I'm just not... I don't think they want to do that, you yeah. know? And... Would would Ratu um, and Wallstrom be enough? Those two players, I think that's intriguing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just curious. If would you a, get a first on top of that? I mean, I would imagine Vancouver would still want one. Let, let's say, for argument's sake, that Vancouver and New York talked. Obviously, a 13th overall pick would have been on the table. Yeah, probably would have been 13th and something else. I don't know if it, it would have been either Wallstrom or Ratu. Probably. Yeah. The guess would be at least. And you know, I. I know that there's been a ton of reports that, uh, you know, Kent Hughes, well, not reports, Kent Hughes flat out said, like, they, they had the, the Kirby Doc deal ahead of they, time ahead yeah. of time at the draft, so they knew it was happening, but... Um, That's why it's very much like, this is the story from this side, this is yeah. the story from that side, and here's all the reporting for everybody. It could be Lou was working on a couple of deals, and then just said, you know what, I'm going to take the Montreal one. Well, I mean, it, it's conceivable that he he was working on that deal. Yeah. They, they were close on something. And then, you know, before you make that deal, it's like, okay, what, okay let's take a, another run around the block here and see what else might be out there for the 13th yeah. overall pick. And you kind of talk and you give, you know, maybe other teams one last chance to improve on what you're about to do. Yeah. And I mean, that's conceivable. Again, we don't we don't know exactly what happened, but, you know, I think what Chris Bauda mentioned is... Uh, Everything kind of aligns that there was some level of discussion between the teams, how close they were or weren't. I mean, that's the that's the issue that we can all debate. That's up for uh, interpretation. Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. Yeah, so much uh, of the Canucks offseason is still centering around JT Miller. And even as we part here for the final Canucks Central mailbag, I am certain of this. We will still have... Some JT Miller questions filtering in through the rest of this week and through the rest of the summer on Canuck Central, on The People's Show, or however you may be listening to us through the course of the summer months. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. Hey, if you want to get in on the Challenger Baseball auction, there's some great prizes. Some really great prizes. The Jays Care Challenger Celebrity Golf Classic online auction. 
jayscaregolf.ca for more information on how you can get in on a Vancouver Canucks experience, some great getaways, even a Whistler getaway. There's some great auctions up and available now for you to bid on and support Challenger Baseball here in this community. They do so much to ensure that every athlete has the opportunity to play in a fun and safe environment. So check that out, jayscaregolf.ca for more information on the online auction. Coming up, it's Canuck Central. It's the mailbag, the final one of the year on Sportsnet 650.